KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. An update on vaccine delays and new COVID cases in San Diego. Well, the numbers are better, but still pretty high. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The SDPD unveils a new policy toward protest policing. The policy says that it's up to the incident commander when officers can use some of these less lethal rounds. Amid a new wave of anti-Asian attacks, two Japanese internment survivors share their memories. And Fernando Tatis becomes the Padres' second $300 million man. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The Petco Park vaccine superstation remains closed today due to delays in vaccine shipments. Other walk-in vaccination sites remain open in San Diego. Meanwhile, the number of new COVID cases in San Diego continues on a downward trend. So hopes are high that the winter surge may be slowing. But experts warn that this is not the time to let our guards down. Joining me with a COVID update is KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. Taryn, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. How do the numbers of new cases and hospitalizations compare with what we were seeing just a few weeks ago? Well, the numbers are better, but still pretty high. Daily new reported cases have been below 1,000 for about 10 days. That's that's good. A few weeks ago, uh, the county was confirming 3,000, 4,000, even older, over 5,000 new cases some days. So a huge drop. But to put this in perspective a bit, back when we were you know, closely watching our case rate, which determines what stage of reopening we're in, county officials said new cases should be within the 250 a day range. And a case rate of seven per 100,000 or less would get us into a little bit less restrictive level of reopening. Last time I checked, our case rate was around 22 per 100,000. Now that has come down a lot recently. And Dr. Wilma Wooten, our county public health officer, said we could be reaching that case rate Um, which is at or below seven in the next couple of weeks, if this decline in new cases continues. Hospitalizations are also looking better. The rates are dropping, but not as drastically as new reported cases. And that may be because we know there's about a two to three week lag between increases in cases and later increases in hospitalizations. So officials mentioned that that may be the same case with decreasing hospitalization. So hopefully those those lower rates will continue to, to, to go that way. Are deaths also declining? 
It's kind of up and down still, a little erratic. Some of that may have to do with the reporting process. Hospitalizations, as I said, lag behind new cases by, by about two to three weeks. So the number of reported deaths will lag even further. So the impact of the reduced number of new positive cases may take a little while longer to show up in the number of lives lost. But county officials have said that they hope the emphasis on vaccinating the older, vulnerable population right now will also help reduce that tally. Why do experts think the rates of infection are down? Well, they've been talking a lot about the post-holiday surge. We know when we see jumps in cases, followed by increases in hospitalizations about two to weeks later, and then unfortunately that could lead to an increase in death. So officials attributed that jump in cases to gatherings that occurred maybe as early as Halloween. So we've moved past that period, hopefully, but they were also concerned about seeing a post-Super Bowl bump. So anytime there's an opportunity where people may be able to gather, that's where that concern comes from of, of increasing the numbers. But hopefully uh, after the surge, people may have uh, recommitted to those measures um, to, to slow the spread. What about the variants? Have they taken hold as much as researchers feared? It seems we're still waiting to see that. There was concern that the new variants could create an even greater surge than what we saw over the holidays, which left us with very limited hospital capacity at times. And Union Tribune's uh, reporter Paul Sisson just looked at this. Projections show that we could be seeing thousands of cases a day around this point. But as I mentioned, we're seeing less than 1,000, fluctuating around 500 to 800. So his report tried to answer why that was. And it could be the vaccinations, even though supply has been challenging, to say the least. It could be a natural seasonal change in the virus. It could be better behaviors among the public following that that surge. Um, it, and fortunately, it seems like a wait-and-see scenario. So officials are urging people not to let down their guard, stay masking, stay distance. Okay, despite the good news of the downward trend in new cases, what are health officials concerned about? So again, it's going to be that scenario is how are these variants going to play out? Are we going to see that surge? We're still looking at how the virus does hold up, uh, or excuse me, how the vaccine does hold up against some of these variants. Some of the news has been positive, but it's really um, limited data at this point. So we're going to have to kind of see how that goes. And also, they're just kind of worried that as we are seeing declining numbers, maybe people will start to be a little bit more comfortable with not adhering to all of those rules. Maybe they get a vaccine vaccination, um, either their first dose or even their second dose, and they're not kind of following all of the guidelines because they do want people to continue practicing those measures to make sure that they're not spreading it to anybody, even though they may be protected from any severe illness with the vaccine. Are the vaccine shortages that they are experiencing at Petco and other sites, are they all due to bad weather back east? That's what we've been hearing. Um, the county during its news conference last week did say that that's the reason why we're hearing about um, vaccinations uh, appointments being canceled. The manufacturers of the two emergency approved vaccines right now are located, I believe, in Massachusetts and Michigan, um, where they have a completely different winter than we do. And so if you're thinking about transporting something, um, you know, in heavy winter, roads are bad and, and things become more complicated. So that can, that has led to, um, you know, difficulties in getting vaccinations to where they need to be. When are the sites, and I'm referring to Petco and the other that had vaccine shortages, when are they expected to be up and running again? And how are they handling people whose appointments have been missed? 
So last week during the county's news briefing, Supervisor Fletcher did say that we could be seeing an impact from these um, supply issues or these transportation issues um, for, you know, maybe a week to 10 days. They're encouraging people to make sure that they're checking their email and checking their appointments. And if they did have one and it did get canceled, they will um, be rescheduled. Now, although these big super sites like Petco get a lot of attention, Taryn, you visited the vaccine preparation at a local community clinic. Tell us about that. Right. Family Health Centers of San Diego has been doing some vaccinations among their patients in the public for a little while now, but they are hopeful to launch a larger site. They want to vaccinate up to 750 people a day at their first larger vaccination site that they hope to open in the Logan Heights area, which actually has some of the highest rates of COVID-19, but some of the lowest numbers. It's in an area that has some of the lowest numbers of vaccinations. So they're working on getting that up and running, but we've been documenting all all of the many challenges. Obviously, vaccine supply is a big one, um, but also just the little uh, things they, they need to pay attention to. I mean, you have to have the vaccine, either whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, kept at very cold temperatures, Pfizer more so than Moderna. We previously uh, documented the all logistics of setting something up, and now this feature gets into all of the many different things required with properly handling the vaccine to make sure that it remains viable. Thanks, Taryn. And here's that report. A gentle swirl of the COVID-19 vaccine vial is critical. Anything more could render the dose ineffective before it fills a syringe and penetrates an arm. The risk begins even before the shipped vials cross the threshold at Family Health Centers of San Diego. They're packed very carefully to minimize disturbance. Lisa Duncan is vice president of nursing and clinical compliance at Family Health Centers. She oversees vaccinations at the community clinic. They're frozen, so that helps they don't get sloshed around. It can't even be relocated off-site without a prior okay. They can maybe have one transport that has to be approved in advance to transfer vaccine supplies so that the, everyone knows where the vaccines are. The vaccine's fragility adds an extra layer of complexity for providers. They must inject doses quickly to reach the county's vaccination goal by July, but they also must take great care. Mishandling can destroy the vaccine's potency, and ongoing supply challenges mean backup doses are practically non-existent. It's a great art and science of managing that this vaccine. Family Health Center's current small-scale operation in their break room is sort of a trial run. They're planning to vaccinate hundreds of people a day at an upcoming site outside their Logan Heights clinic. But the nation's limited vaccine supplies have delayed its opening, making proper handling that much more critical. So this is a conference room that we've uh, repurposed for staging the vaccine. We have a freezer here that when the vaccine arrives from the manufacturer, we put it right into the freezer. The pharmaceutical grade freezer that's no bigger than a college dorm fridge is the key component. Anything outside the required cold temperatures triggers an alarm. It's hooked up to our Wi-Fi and it'll send us a message whenever or if we have, hopefully it doesn't happen. But if the unit goes out of range, then we're notified immediately. But the vaccine must actually be thawed before it can be used. It'll last up to 30 days in a fridge, but only hours in the room down the hall where dosing takes place. And once the vial is pierced, it has a six-hour shelf life. You're constantly looking at how much needs to go in the refrigerator, um, how much do we pull out and put into the room, how long has it been in the room, 
Um, how long has it been open since you took out the first dose? It's almost as though you were dealing with uh, chocolate. Dr. Dial Hewlett is Deputy Health Commissioner for Westchester County in New York. He credits another scientist with the analogy, but recounts it to explain the vulnerability of a key ingredient in the vaccine, ribonucleic acid, or RNA for short. And if you have chocolate, you know that if you get to a certain temperature, it's going to melt. Hence the cold. You have enzymes that will destroy the integrity that are not going to be active when you have a very low temperature, but when you have a higher temperature, those enzymes will become activated. Providers like family health centers have coordinators whose sole job is to monitor the safe handling and storage of vaccines. All of us are very much aware of the parameters and back each other up on that, but generally one person is in charge of making sure that the supply is moving out of the refrigerator appropriately. And then at the end of the day, um, everybody start sharing the vial so that we don't open one up. Every detail here will be duplicated and expanded at Logan Heights. Family Health Centers is hoping it will accommodate up to 750 people a day. But vaccine supply shortages mean it's on hold for now. They're hoping shipments will flow early next month thanks to an upcoming federal program that prioritizes community clinics. Taryn Mento, KPBS News. Hand washing and disinfecting surfaces are always good ideas, but research now shows that COVID-19 is spread primarily through the air. That's the message from a group of prominent researchers who are urging the CDC to update its COVID prevention guidelines. They say more attention should be paid to better masks and air filters to reduce the spread of tiny particles in exhaled air that are responsible for the majority of COVID-19 infections. The researchers have written a letter with their recommendations to the Biden administration. And one of the co-signers is UC San Diego atmospheric chemist Kim Prather. And she joins us now. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How do we know that most infections are spread by airborne particles? Because basically, you know, in the measurements, the science is pointing in, in, in this direction when, uh, you know, the measurements, people are just detecting them in these tiny aerosols. You can actually collect aerosols in the air and look and see if infectious virus is there. And indeed, that's where that's the only place um, we've found the infectious virus so far. Um, as you know, the focus has been on, you know, droplets, the big, big droplets. Um, but we're actually, there's far more evidence that it, that it's, that the virus is appearing in these tiny aerosols that remain afloat. Can you give us an example of how aerosols that contain the virus spread in a room? Sure. Yeah. So basically what happens there's, you know, is when you speak, simply speak, not coughing or sneezing. I mean, you can cough and sneeze, but for this virus, it's people don't know they're sick. They have no symptoms. So they're just talking. And it's like, it's equivalent, honestly, to being in the room with like a cigarette smoker. And you've been in the room with smokers before. You can see the smoke loft into the air and kind of rise and spread out. That's exactly how uh, these virus aerosols um, spread about a room. And so if you don't have good ventilation, uh, then they can just build up in a room. And the longer you're in the room and the longer you're breathing, the more potentially infectious virus that you're inhaling. Do these aerosols stay in a room even after an infected person leaves? 
Yes, they do. They can hang out in the room for hours, if not days. They just float. They don't sink to the ground, certainly not within six feet. That's the other thing. And so it's super important. Uh, one of the most important factors that you control in a room, and not everyone does this, is even if you're six feet apart in a room, you must wear a good fitting mask. Now, after the CDC received the letter that you and 12 other prominent researchers sent last week, the agency did not choose to change its guidelines. It said people are already being advised by the CDC that proper masking is the best defense against infection. What do you think that response is missing? Uh, you know, it was really missed, honestly, that that response sort of missed the bulk of our message. And so we are still um, in discussions. In fact, I just got done having a discussion on how do we sort of take this to the next level of trying to get them to see that we're really just trying in, in a lot of ways, just protect workers. They're clearly not being protected well, um, especially people that work indoors, you know, meat packing, nursing homes. Well, they're starting those, but people that aren't even healthcare like teachers. You know, how do we protect them more? They are not adequately protected right now at all. And so we are not, we're not slowing down. We're waiting for a response from the Biden administration still. Um, and we're trying to figure out sort of the next um, way to try. And there's many multiple ways you can do this. And we're thinking of the next best way to, to try and get this message across. Our whole goal is just to protect people from indoor exposure. And obviously, it's, you know, not enough right now. And so we're continuing to push. The letter recommended issuing emergency OSHA workplace requirements on ventilation and air filters. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the, uh, I would say, almost excuses that's been used, um, unfortunately, is that we can't recommend some, they can't recommend something if we don't have enough of them. In particular, we, there's always, you've heard about the shortage of N95 masks the adequate masks since the beginning. And so what we did was we sort of separated the two and we said, okay, you know, make more N95 masks, which include not just the sort of standard ones, but like the, the um, elastomeric respirators. There's all kinds of ways you can, it, uh, you know, ramp up uh, production. So that's one, and that's more aimed at people in sort of healthcare, high risk worker situations. And then we said, okay, to take the pressure off, the public needs to also have access to good masks. And right now the public can, you can buy a mask, but you don't really know how efficient that mask is. And so we're recommending, and there's recommendations that are I think gonna be coming on, you know, how masks work, how efficient they are at removing the virus, how breathable they are, you know, basically how, how well they fit. These are all things that vary for every mask you buy. So you might be wearing a mask, but that mask may not be effective. Just a tiny leak, just to give you an example, a tiny leak where it, say it doesn't seal against 1% of your face, right? So just a little hole. That can lead to a 50% reduction in filtration efficiency. You know, 2% can lead to like nearly three quarters of a reduction, which means that, you know, 75% more gets through, right? And so, having well-fitting masks, making sure that they fit well, and having the public more aware of how to protect themselves is so, so critical right now. And so we were, we sort of split the two because they have different demands and, you know, we're pushing from both directions right now. And what are your recommendations on ventilation and air filters? 
Yeah. So, you know, ventilation is just the easiest, can be the easiest one in the sense that, you know, it's cracking a window. Um, If you have a lot of people indoors, reducing the number of people indoors. Again, wearing masks indoors is important, but then adding the ventilation, these different layers of protection. So ventilation is one. I have been talking a lot more about filtration because these viruses are incredibly filterable, if you will, you can remove them with just a simple HEPA filter, no fancy plasma ionizer, just a HEPA filter in the room will filter that air and remove the virus from the air that you're breathing. And so, you know, sort of each, each one, we call it a layer of protection, you know, sort of backs you up, you know, and basically gives you more protection, the more you have. So is research indicating that it's not necessary to wipe down surfaces and disinfect packages as so many people have been doing for so long? So far, that's what the research is showing. I mean, it's not saying you should still wash your, you know, you should still wash your hands, but this over cleaning um, is probably overkill. Uh, The research so far, there's been a couple of really pretty good papers that have shown, you know, relatively little evidence um, of the transmission via surfaces. It is largely, I mean, all evidence, solid evidence we have so far is pointing to inhalation of these tiny aerosols from the air. And so you're still hoping for some positive feedback from the Biden administration? Yeah, you know, I we haven't gotten any negative. So I think there's just a little bit of, a, you know, it was a week ago, I guess. And so, yeah, we're still hoping to hear from the Biden administration. We're going to continue communicating with the CDC, who it also went to. We sent it to three different groups. We sent it to the Biden administration. We sent it to Dr. Tony Fauci, and we sent it to the director of the CDC. And it was the CDC press office, to be specific, that responded to the media, not to us. So we still haven't gotten a response from them either. Um, And so we are still, you know, sort of in a holding pattern to some extent, waiting to hear um, from, you know, one or all of those parties. I've been speaking with UC San Diego atmospheric chemist, Kim Prather. Kim, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The San Diego Police Department is out with a new policy on how officers should respond during protests. The department was criticized for how it responded to local protests against police violence over the summer. Some protesters said the department at times responded with large numbers of officers in tactical gear and with force. Joining me to discuss this is David Hernandez, who covers law enforcement, crime, and public safety for the San Diego Union Tribune. David, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what spurred the creation of this policy? So essentially, this all began after 
you know, the months of protests after protests after protests last year against police violence, not just in San Diego, but across the country. It began with a community advisory board and oversight board. They essentially wanted the police department to look into having a policy. So they began by looking at policies in other cities. And in the end, were able to share some of those policies with the police department to help guide them as they set out to draft their own policy. The policy says the department supports peaceful demonstrations and outlines its role. What is that role? Yeah, so protests can be pretty dynamic, and the policy outlines um, a variety of different responses to different situations. Um, It generally outlines officers' roles during protests that remain peaceful, but a big chunk of it also ventures into uh, situations when protests turn unlawful. But essentially, you know, as they outline it at the top, you know, their their mission is to ensure that protests stay peaceful and to prevent criminal activities. Um, and then depending on how protests evolve, if, you know, they turn violent, for example, uh, the protest, the policy, I'm sorry, also outlines different parameters that officers should abide by in terms of when to deem a protest unlawful or when they should use less lethal uh, weapons. Okay. And just out of curiosity, what is their definition of peaceful? Um, would, you know, we saw a lot of anti-mask uh, rallies during the summer as well. And there also was the potential of spreading pathogens, deadly pathogens for some during that time. Um, did they go into any detail on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they don't go into detail in regards to a specific answer to the question you have. But I think the real question here is, you know, how would they define a protest being unlawful? And it does get into that a little bit. It essentially uh, gives a lot of discretion to an incident commander, uh, which typically is a ranking officer who oversees the police response to a demonstration. Um, It gives that person a lot of discretion and the policy outlines some things, some factors for this person to consider, uh, including the nature and the number of unlawful acts, um, the threats to people or property, and whether it would be more appropriate for officers to make individual arrests as opposed to you know, largely asking people to disperse. Um, And so that was actually one of the criticisms in general about the policy from community members. They said that it gives a lot of discretion and leaves too much open to interpretation. So there are some questions uh, that remain. It also outlines the department's use of less than lethal force. Remind us what that is. What is less than lethal force? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so that essentially covers anything from beanbag rounds to pepper ball rounds and even tear gas grenades. Um, so it really ranges. The, the policy generally calls uh, less lethal rounds and weapons dispersal techniques. And that also covers everything from, as I mentioned, tear gas grenades to rubber sting balls, which are grenades that fire pellets and cause loud blasts and bright flash So essentially, it covers when officers are able to use that. Um, Again, there are a lot of questions and community members feel like there's too much that's left up for interpretation and also gives too much discretion to the incident commander. Um, Essentially, the policy says that it's up to the incident commander when officers can use some of these less lethal rounds, some of the most uh, in some of the more intense ones, 
that is up to an assistant chief uh, to give the authority to use those. And that includes tear gas grenades and the rubber sting balls that I outlined. You know, as you mentioned, you spoke to community members who say the plan is lacking. What do they say is missing in this plan? So they actually kind of all had something different to say about the policy. And it is a 15-page document, so there it does cover quite a bit. Um, and what was interesting to me is that they all kind of picked something different that they took issue with. Um, but generally, and a few of them brought up uh, these issues, they felt that the policy lacks uh, restrictions on the use of less lethal weapons and also a lack of a focus on de-escalation. So language, for example, that would deem these tools a last resort or you know, that would require officers to try any other techniques before moving on to these uh, less lethal weapons. Those were the main concerns. There were also some other concerns, including some other language that also talks about police in the planning stage, considering the composition of the group that's expected to turn out. Um, Some felt that police shouldn't really consider that because it gets at the identity and the message of the group. Others felt that, you know, police shouldn't really try to work with organizers because organizers don't really have the authority over uh, demonstrations, demonstrators' actions and could be scapegoated if things go wrong. Those were the, the main concerns. All right. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Hernandez. David, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Since the start of the pandemic, Asian Americans around the state have faced racist attacks. In recent weeks, that violence has intensified. An 84-year-old man died after being violently attacked in late January in his San Francisco neighborhood. A 91-year-old man was pushed to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown neighborhood earlier this month. And here in San Diego, a Filipino woman in her 80s was attacked while riding on the trolley. The anti-Asian violence we're seeing today evokes a painful time in history for Japanese Americans. Friday marked the anniversary of President Roosevelt's executive order that forced some 120,000 people into incarceration camps during World War II. As part of the Yonsei Memory Project's collaboration with StoryCorps, today we're bringing you a conversation between lifelong friends, 95-year-old Gary Sudama and 88-year-old Yutaka Yamamoto. They talk about their memories of Japanese-American incarceration camps during World War II and how they adjusted to life afterward. Gary starts us off. We're very close friends from way back. We've known each other since 1951. My dad came over from Hiroshima when he was 16 years old. So he came into the city of Stockton and opened up a grocery store. My dad was getting ready to transfer everything over to my second oldest brother, Ben. And that's when the war broke out. So we were given a notice of one week to clean up our business. So my dad went around Stockton to find out some grocer who would buy the stock that was in the store. He found a store man that would buy it on 60 cents on a dollar. My dad had to agree to it. And then he waited and waited for them to come pick it up. Day before we had to leave, he came and gave my dad 15 cents on a dollar. 
And my dad had no way to get out of it, so he took it. 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. The thing I remember most was that from December 7th on, every day the teacher that I had was a Caucasian lady. She would turn the radio on. The National Broadcasting Company brings you the latest news from the Far Eastern War Zone and from its experts on... The news naturally was about the war and the Japanese. At that time, nobody said we were Japanese. They used a nickname, Jap. And that was one of the slangs that I, to this day, I, I've never forgotten. It's uh, very painful to hear people call you a Jap. Uh, I remember that was a uh, big shock. I remember going to school, I think I was in the fourth grade then, and I told my teacher, who was a Caucasian, I won't be coming to school from tomorrow. And her only reply was, oh, you know, not, no goodbyes or nothing. I never forgot that incident because my home life also took a drastic change. My parents ran a uh, laundry business in Chinatown. After the uh, notices uh, were put up around the neighborhood stating that uh, all people of uh, Japanese interest m must move by a certain date, and, and it was about... Seven days. Seven days? Seven days. And uh, the government would allow us only what we can carry into the camps. So we couldn't take our furnitures, automobiles, radios, if it contained a shortwave band. For some reason, my uh, dad and my mother had sense enough to, uh, one of the first thing they did was uh, bought five dinner set made out of metal. One fan, electric fan, one hot pan, and uh, five sleeping bag. They had sense enough to buy those items to take into camp because we could only carry bring what we can carry. A lot of the public was not aware of the fact that we were put into camps. I hope nothing like that happens again to any uh, nationality. Yeah. We went to Stockton Assembly Center and we were there for about six months. And then we were supposed to go to Roar, Arkansas. My oldest brother had uh, TB, and he was in a sanitarium. So the government told us, any family has a sibling with TB, if we go to Arizona, where it's dry climate, they'll send our sibling there. Well, we went to Arizona, and our brothers weren't sent there. So that's the second time the government and I didn't get along. The war ended, uh, my parents uh, received uh, a letter from, from their parents saying that uh, uh, don't come back to Japan because uh, there's no place to raise a family. So my dad decided to come back to Fresno. We couldn't uh, walk around freely and feel comfortable. Never miss somebody would either drive by or walk by and they would look at us and say, "You." dirty Jap, nothing would uh, rile me up more than to hear a person 
call me a Jap, yeah. And I was drafted into the Korean War. And then when my time came, after two years of service, they shipped me home. And after I came home to Alamosa, Colorado, I packed up and left the family to come to Fresno. My second oldest brother, Ben, was living. I lived with them, and I started to go to Fresno State. That's when I met Yutaka. I was working for the gas station, and you walked by the gas station quite often. But I finally met him, and we've been good friends. Yeah, 70-odd years. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I remember is Ronald Reagan's time, when we got the reparation, the the American government uh, allocated $20,000 to each person that was put into the camp. Each person that was alive, Mm -hmm. which wasn't enough. You've just heard a conversation between lifelong friends Gary Sudama and Yutaka Yamamoto. They were speaking as part of a collaboration between StoryCorps and the Yonsei Memory Project, which is an intergenerational effort to capture the voices of Japanese Americans in the Central Valley. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. When some people saw the news, they thought the whole team had been sold. The dollar amount is $340 million, and it's not for the Padres, but for one player, Fernando Tatis Jr. The 14-year deal between the shortstop and the San Diego Padres was finalized just this morning. It is the longest contract in baseball history. The San Diego Padres have now signed two players, Tatis and third baseman Manny Machado, for at least $300 million each. And these very big deals are by no means the only ones the Padres have negotiated. Joining me now is San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, welcome. Hi, Jade. How are we doing today? Hey, we're doing good. Even better if I had a $300 million contract. But, but here we are. So tell me, you know, given the history of the Padres, this is pretty stunning news. How would you describe what Padres general manager A.J. Preller has been doing and how his moves compared to his first four years as GM? Yeah, you know, my, my Spanish is a little bit limited, but this is mucho dinero. I'll just say that uh, <laughs> uh, for the Padres to to make this splash and and to uh, really secure Fernando Tatis for the the prime seasons of his, uh, which should be a long and exciting career, it, it's really stunning that it's the Padres are doing it. But really, kind of uh, they've been tipping your, their hand, if you will, and for the past five off seasons, they've set a team record for giving an individual contract. So with Manny Machado and, and Eric Hosmer and now Tatiste and Will Myers, that 
you know, they're not singing those small market blues anymore. They are writing some big checks and they're all, it's all about bringing down the big, bad Dodgers to the North. You know, the, the days of having to suffer through Padre games where it's not only did they often lose, but they were deadly boring. This is an entertainment business. They see Tatis as an entertainer as much as a player. He's exciting. He oozes with confidence. He makes everybody else around him better. He is just flat fun to watch. I guess that's why it, it, he merited top dollar. But but really, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty risky, isn't it? Um, he hasn't even played a full season worth of games yet. So this would be his first full season playing, assuming all goes well. Great point. Uh, both sides now are, are taking quite a risk. Uh, some people are saying Tatis is, is leaving uh, millions of dollars on the table by by agreeing to such a long deal. But, you know, he could sign another big deal, really. It'll only be 35 or so when this one expires. But uh, the Padres are taking a chance. And uh, it, it tells what they think of Mr. Tatis. And it think it tells you they've got the money now to take those risks. It could have blow up in their face. Absolutely. You know, a guy could get injured. A, a, a guy could tail off his career. And, and remember the shortstop is one of the most demanding positions on the, on the field. There's so much action and you are, you know, prone to getting hurt. And the market certainly wasn't going to be going down for Tatis. They figured we like what we see. We're going to make sure he stays here. Are we going to take a risk? Yes, we are. We feel like it's worth it. All right. In 2017, Tatis signed with a firm called Big League Advance. Tell us what that is and why that contract is going to cost Tatis millions. Yeah, it's it's like uh, almost having a sponsorship. Like you see it in golf all the time where a guy's a good golfer, but certainly doesn't have the money to, to go traveling the world to, to chase wins and to chase prize money. In Tatis, uh, the firm BLA saw a potential star. And they gave him the security of, of, of some money early in his career when, you know, they, not a lot of people were predicting he was going to be signing a $340 million contract when he was 18, 19 years old. So, again, it was a, a managed risk. It was a risk that uh, uh, the firm was willing to take. And now, you know, some reports are it, it could cost Tatis $34 million. That's a lot of money. But $34 million off a $340 million contract, that's, you know, change off the dresser at night, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> but uh, speaking of all this money, <laughs> you know, I mean, I got to know the Padres payroll is already pretty substantial here. I've read that uh, Manny Machado, Will Myers and Eric Hosmer alone cost the team 70 million a year. You mentioned you touched on the deep pockets right. here, but, you know, where is all this money coming from? It's coming from uh, Peter Seidler, the uh, the team chairman, if you will, Ron Fowler, uh, one of the other owners, stepped back a little bit. And this is Pete Seidler's baby now. And uh, Seidler runs uh, Seidler Equity Firm. He's uh, the grandson of uh, Peter O'Malley, the, the former Dodgers owner. And, and, of course, his grandfather brought the Dodgers out, out west uh, from Brooklyn. So he's grown up in the game, but he went out. He knows the game inside and out, but he went out and made his money in the business world. And his equity firm is uh, worldwide with offices in Australia and everywhere. So he, he can cut the checks. And uh, I think it also shows that, uh, you know, these – these owners aren't benevolent. I mean, if, if they think they can invest that money and get a return on it, that shows you how much they're making too. It's uh, I think what's so striking or telling with this contract is most other major league uh, teams, Jade are, are kind of dialing it back because of, of those revenue streams that were interrupted last year because of the virus. So while other teams are kind of tightening their purses, here comes Peter Seidler and, and with the Tatis contract that said we're full steam ahead. So, 
this isn't like a one-year splash or one year we're going to try to win it this year and, and then dial it back. They see this as a sustainable contending team well into the future. Uh, and that that comes from the nine straight losing seasons the Padre fans had to sit through. They think they're going to have a sustainable winning product for years to come. Mm. Improving pitching must have been a major goal for Preller. Tell us about some of the pitchers the Padres signed during the offseason. Yeah, he was very busy. Uh, Blake Snell, uh, Cy Young Award winner a couple of years ago from Tampa Bay Rays was brought in. Uh, Yu Darvish, a former Japanese star who was the runner-up for the Cy Young Award, which goes to the best pitcher in the National League last year. And then uh, Joe Musgrave, uh, the pride of East County, he, w- he was added to the rotation too. Again, these are proven players they're bringing in. These aren't young kids with peach fuzz, and boy, we hope their development goes fast. I mean, pitchers that, that Mr. Preller brought in, you know, you flip over their baseball card, there's some years on there, and there's some successful years. So, you know, you're only as good as your starting pitching is, is a longtime baseball cliche. And while T- Tatis and these other big hitters are certainly uh, going to be asked to do a lot, you got to have strong pitching. And he certainly uh, fortified that part of the team. So how do you think the team will stack up against the Dodgers this year? You know, it's uh, it's not a pipe during to, to think they can uh, can play with them. Can they beat them? We'll see. 19 games this year, Dodgers-Padres. Each one's going to be like a World Series. You know how much San Diego people love to, love to beat L.A. Well-known betting site today put out the projections for how many wins. They have the Padres down for 93 and they have, I'm sorry, 95, and they have the Dodgers down for 103. So that shows you how close, really, they've, they've, they've made the strides they made to catching the Dodgers. But again, the Dodgers are world champions, and until you knock that crown off their noggin, you know, they're going to strut around like they are, and they, they deserve it. But it's just exciting that it's no longer they're going into a game um, knowing you're, you're, you don't have the wherewithal to compete. Hmm. And what's been the reaction from fans to all these contracts? Well, you know, I think uh, another compelling point here is that the Padres have this market to themselves. There's no other baseball team in Canada or the United States that doesn't share a a city or a region with either an NBA team or NFL team. So since the Chargers have left and, you know, we've gone through a couple NBA teams, I mean, the Padres are it. So these fans are so desperate for a winner and so desperate to to puff their chest out. You know, that, that was a kick in the teeth when the Chargers left. The psyche, if you will, of the collective San Diego sports fan has been down a little bit. Now that here come the Padres. They're the only game in town, and they're good. You know, it'd be one thing if they were the only game in town and they were losing 90 games like they were for like nine straight years. They're good, and those fans have been had the patience of Job. I mean, if anybody deserves it, it's these Padre fans. They've sat through a lot of losing seasons, and now they can go to the ballpark thinking, hey, we got a chance to win tonight. Hey, we'll see if they're World Series bound for sure. I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, thanks for joining us. All right, Jay. Have a good day now. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.